Have you ever gotten to the end of a conversation or train of thought and then pause to ask yourself, how did I end up here? To which you then try and remember the full flow of thought in reverse? Well, I hope I'm not the only person who plays that game, but I ask because if you heard the previous episode, I said this. If you look close enough, there truly is life and death dancing together in every moment. That is the flow of all things, but it is how you choose to see it that defines your outlook. Which is poetic, but admittedly an inconclusive statement on its own, or at minimum it leaves a lot of room for expanding on the topic. As I was listening back and editing after recording, that statement also feels like something you would end a conversation with rather than start one. So when I thought of it that way, I played the game. I tried to remember it in reverse and see what personal conversations or steps led me to that outcome and outlook. Although there's no specific time or date per se, I do recall the general question that started these inner conversations a little while back. And that's what I would like to expand on in this episode, the question that got some of this rolling. Because I feel not like I have something to teach or so, but because it's just part of the story, part of the vapor, if you will. So, after hearing my statement played back to me and playing the conversation game, here's what I realized. Many of my own perspectives and outlooks begin to evolve or at least shift when I pause to ask myself one specific question. It was this. Why am I not happy? So, with an easy question like that, let's get started. Now, I would like to clarify, I have absolutely no formalized training or schooling on any of these topics that I'm about to talk about. The only thing I have to share is my own experiences. I was just a kid raised with the internet who is now an adult, and now my only consistent hobby is probably researching. But I will say some of the things I've learned have been incredibly enlightening and helped me along my own path through this life. So. I invite you in today, not to convince you of anything or teach you a lesson of sorts, but rather just to share some of my story. So let's get started. Why am I not happy? Well, as all good researchers do after asking a hard-hitting and existential question like this, I googled, what is happiness? Which was not as helpful as I would have hoped. The first result of my well-thought-out research showed me the dictionary definition of the actual word, which makes sense until you realize that the definition of happiness is the state of being happy, which is poetic, but admittedly also an inconclusive statement on its own. Deja vu. Now, I dug a little deeper than a cursory Google search, but a subject as broad as happiness can make it tough to know which direction to go when you are researching. My brain typically approaches things from a pragmatic point of view before anything else. This means that more often than not, I want to know what we can prove and repeat. I want that empirical data. So that is where I started. And this got me asking questions like, is there anything about happiness we can measure? Because it, it does feel a bit ethereal at times. 
something I've been loosely familiar with, and maybe you have as well, is that each time we are saying we are happy or gratified in any way, we are more or less saying that the happy chemicals have been released into our brain and body. But what does that mean? What is the actual purpose and measurement of these chemicals? And if possible, can we trigger them somehow? Well, as I sat tucked away in my studio researching a bit here and there, I learned that there are many different chemicals in the body that we typically encounter when feeling happy or fulfilled. We're going to expand on them a bit because even if this info seems boring at face value, I think it can really start to add some clarity to what makes you, you. What makes you tick, or maybe not tick. A few of these names may ring a bell to you. First up on this list, and maybe the most well-known as a happy chemical, is serotonin, which is linked to happiness, but also a lot of other things too, such as influencing learning, memory, sleep, sexual behaviors, and a few more things after that. But for our conversation, I want to focus on the fact that serotonin is meant to be released in the brain to help regulate mood. When you have normal levels of serotonin, you feel more focused and emotionally stable. While, on the other hand, low levels of serotonin can be linked to depression. In fact, medications used to treat anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders often target ways to increase the levels of serotonin in your brain. Serotonin is there when you're feeling accomplished or dominant over others. It also helps to control bowel movements, but that's hardly an endearing topic for a second episode, so we will stick to the happy, feel-good job that it holds. Next up, we find dopamine, another semi-popular name. This handy chemical plays a role in how we feel rewarded. Amongst other things as well, it helps us to focus, to strive, and to find things interesting. This kind little chemical acts as a reward for when we accomplish something meaningful to us. I read as well that no one knows specifically what causes ADHD in humans, but some research shows it may be due to a shortage of this chemical. The ADHD medication Ritalin actually functions by boosting dopamine. And although depression is more often linked to the lack of serotonin, the first chemical I mentioned, studies find that dopamine deficiencies can also contribute to a lower mood. So. Dopamine is released from positive outcomes, that feeling you get when finding money in your pocket, or when you pursue that one obscure hobby, or bite that perfectly cooked and favorite food. Ooh, that's the dopamine. It's essentially the motivation molecule in the body. Third on the list are endorphins. Now, these are lovely, and I think you might agree because they are produced in the nervous system to help cope with physical pain and stress. They're at times called the feel-good chemical because of how they can act as a natural pain reliever and a happiness booster. The endorphin's core focus is to block the communication of pain signals, but it can also be released during things like intense exercise. Interestingly, these chemicals are naturally produced by the body during pleasurable activities like sex or laughing, 
but then also during painful experiences like twisting your ankle. If you recall that wave that runs through your body from your toe all the way up to your head when you snag your pinky toe on the dresser, that is definitely the endorphins at your service. Last on our list for today is oxytocin, which is not technically a happy chemical per se, because I read it primarily works in controlling aspects of the reproductive system. But aside from reproduction, this hormone has a role in promoting social connection. Oxytocin can increase positive attitudes, like bonding, with individuals with similar characteristics to us. This peculiar chemical helps us categorize people into who is with us as the in-group and who is not as the out-group. Something very interesting I read is that when participants in a particular study were administered extra oxytocin, they had increased rates of dishonesty. These test participants would lie more often if they believed the lie would keep them in good standings with their in-group. So these are choosy little hormones to say the least. Like I said, oxytocin is not technically a happy chemical, but with how it ties into reproduction and social bonding, it kind of feels like an honorable mention when I'm talking about increases in positive outcomes and emotions. So a brief recap, serotonin is there when you are feeling accomplished and helps you to regulate mood. Dopamine acts as our motivation molecule. Endorphins are these quick-release chemicals that alleviate pain and stress. And last is oxytocin, which is the social bonding chemical. So you might be asking, sir, why are you rambling on about brain chemicals? Well, I'm trying to walk you through my thought process on how I got somewhere specific, but I'm also trying to point out how complex it is just to get a little happiness around here. The exact cause and effects of these things are still being researched, and everyone experiences these chemicals and hormones in different ways, and from different stimuli. Even small variations in diet can impact your body's ability to create some of these vital building blocks for your well-being. This scientific view of happiness is fascinating to me, and there are many more details I feel ill-equipped to share, so I'm hoping this maybe just teases you into them if you find it interesting. But with as complex as a scientific view can be, it doesn't really answer the question of why am I not happy. Knowing a bit about the chemicals in your brain can start to show you maybe the building blocks of happiness, but the knowledge hardly shows you the path to happiness. So I feel like we gotta come at it from another angle. Although my brain goes first into the measurable and quantifiable chemicals that might bring us joy, I also found some other helpful ways of trying to explain happiness in more philosophical terms. In fact, I stumbled into what some might say is an age-old philosophical and psychological debate on what the actual source of happiness is. A specific view I like, and that seems semi-common, splits happiness into two categories, called hedonic and eudaimonic. 
hedonic happiness is achieved through experiences of pleasure and enjoyment, while eudaimonic happiness is achieved through experiences of meaning and purpose. So let's unpack that a bit. Hedonia may sound familiar. It's where hedonism comes from, and it's based in pleasure. It's most often associated with doing what feels good, like self-care or fulfilling your own desires, experiencing what you see as enjoyment, and feeling a sense of satisfaction. This view of happiness is rather broad, but it's defined in terms of pleasures for both the body and the mind. Think of some of your guiltiest pleasures, and there is like an 85% chance that they fall into this category. This hedonia idea started somewhere back in the 4th century with a Greek philosopher named Aristippus, who said that the ultimate goal in life should be to maximize pleasure. From then on, many people have adhered to this belief and worked to maximize pleasure and minimize pain in their lives in order to be happiest. Then we have eudaimonia. This is a type of happiness derived from seeking virtue and meaning. Important components of this eudaimonic happiness include feeling like your life has meaning, value, and some sense of deeper purpose. It's associated more with fulfilling responsibilities, investing in long-term personal goals, and having concern for the welfare of other people, and living up to your own personal ideals. This concept also dates back to the 4th century, but from some guy named Aristotle. He said, to achieve happiness, we should live our life in accordance with our values and virtues. By pursuing these and becoming our best selves, we would achieve our higher sense of personal purpose and meaning. The age-old debate I poked at is that some psychological researchers come from a strictly hedonic view and say that that is the way to ultimate happiness, and some from a strictly eudaimonic view. Then, as always, there are some in the middle who say that a balance is what is needed, but then they cannot agree on where the balance falls to maximize your well-being. Hedonic behaviors can help to increase positive feelings in ways that help us regulate mood and emotion while reducing stress and depression. And then eudaimonic behaviors lead to greater meaning in life and satisfaction with your larger story. As I've said, I'm no professional in these areas, but as I get a little more familiar with all these brain chemicals and philosophy, I can start to infer why specific things in my life start to bring me bits of joy. If I think about the chemical side, I can see how endorphins convince me that although it's not fun, a run in the Tennessee summer can feel enjoyable in some obscure use of that word. I also begin to see the dopamine hits from the things I enjoy like artisan keycaps and my dog's idiot smile. And also the dopamine hit from things I do not enjoy, like how easy it is to sink an entire afternoon into TikTok. And then there's the philosophical side, with eudaimonic and hedonic happiness. And for those, I think of the long evenings I've spent crafting this podcast that do bring me a greater sense of purpose. And the hedonic side, like the cosmic brownies in my pantry. Now, hedonistic behaviors are not intrinsically bad by any means. They are just temporary or fleeting. 
These hedonistic experiences create a spike in pleasure and enjoyment, but that spike soon wears off and leaves us at the same happiness level that we started. These types of behaviors will improve your mood, but only temporarily, and they also get less effective at creating the spike in your mood as you repeat them over and over again. Eudaimonic behaviors are different, though. They actually get better at making you happy the more that you do them, because they require more thought and effort to achieve, and they increase the base level of happiness in your life. But this is also their Achilles heel, since they require more thought, energy, and effort on the front end, they have a larger barrier to entry making it harder to just spin up eudaimonic habits and hobbies when I'm feeling sad and purposeless. This might make it seem like even though they are a larger lift, we should always push for eudaimonia to increase the base happiness we feel. But many times that's just not practical in our everyday lives. If you're really stressed or worn down or feeling sad, a simple hedonistic meal and your favorite movie can be the exact mood booster you needed. So, I suppose that puts me in the category of people who think a healthy balance of both is important. But, I admit, I am in no place to attempt to define that balance for anyone. Alright, now that I have tossed all these brain science facts your way, and we have joined the age-old debate of hedonia or eudaimonia, I hope you can see that happiness is very difficult to define. But we mostly know it when we feel it. However, that feeling is an individual experience and incredibly subjective. It is so subjective that something which makes you happy today may not do the same for you next week. So where does that put us? With all of us experiencing these chemicals on different levels and them being a little tough to define, and create, and with the true source of happiness being under debate since the 4th century, this question of why am I not happy starts to feel unanswerable. So where does that put us? I'm not sure where that puts us. Like I said, happiness is so subjective, and I'm not sure there is a single answer to that question that would satisfy all of us. Although I have no fix-all answer, I do have an answer that has satisfied me. Or, rather, it's an answer that satisfies me currently. So, I know I was sounding a bit teachy with the brain chemical stuff, and I hope I didn't lose you, but for this next bit, I want to take off the proverbial lab coat and share a story with you. This story is from 2021, when I was hiking on my birthday and heavily contemplating this core lack of happiness within myself. Admittedly, this is a story that pushes my levels of vulnerability, because it means an incredible amount to me, but can seem really mundane to any person listening, since it can be tough to put to words. But uh, nonetheless, I share it with you because it's helped me recently. It's helped me to see a little bit more beauty in life, and flow a little bit easier through the tossing and turning. It has become a tradition of mine to go out and hike on my own around my birthday. I feel some of my most refreshed moments under a forest canopy, so I often like to use solo hikes as a time to recharge and ask, how am I doing? 
do a little self-led check-in and let anything that needs to be felt be felt. It can be rare that we give ourselves the proper space and time to process, so this is a slow and relaxing tradition for me each year to reflect on my life during what's become kind of my own personal new year. It helps too that I'm a fall baby, so it's a really beautiful time to hike because all the trees are just turning color and laying down their leaves. So the story of this year started no differently. I woke up early, I took off into the trees, toting my backpack and my hammock and my dad hat with the little tiny ghost embroidered on it. And I began to slowly hike up into the woods, step by step, just reflecting on the year prior, taking account of all these precious little memories I was able to create and doing my best to dedicate them to memory somehow so they would not easily fade or be forgotten. A lot of times on these hikes, I will look over all the photos I've taken from the last year and compile my favorites into a little folder. It's fun because I always get some forgotten memories flooding back as I look over those photos. And taking a moment like this during the last few birthdays is a really nice way to guarantee that at least once in the year, I am hyper-focused on the really beautiful things in my life. It can be incredibly centering. In years prior, this self-led check-in has been a vastly positive experience. Any negative emotions that came up were processed and felt without too much stress or time. But this year felt heavier than most. There were a lot of dense emotional details in my life that had been weighing me down more than I probably realized. On top of that, there was a long list of global circumstances going on that made us all adopt to new normals pretty much daily. This year, when I had myself pause and finally gave that space, it felt like a dam of emotions had been waiting for due process and finally broke loose. Now that I was giving myself time to process the years prior, I could feel wave after wave of it just pass over me. At that moment, I laid back against a tree and just wept. It was the first time in my life I had cried so hard I could not stand, so I just gave in to it. There was no option but to stop pushing back and let every bit of the year just wash over me without any resistance, just letting every emotion have its time needed. It's tough to explain exactly what was being felt because it wasn't just one emotion. It more seemed like I was feeling the full spectrum of emotions at once. Maybe what started it was finally admitting to myself just how hard the last year had been. There were many negative circumstances that took place outside of my control, like family health, that were inescapable and unavoidable. But then at the same time I would be mulling over this inescapable sadness, I would find moments of deep, deep joy tucked into the story. A heavy but genuine example would be from the conversation's last episode with my sister Alexis. She was experiencing a cancer diagnosis, but the cancer was brought about by the pregnancy of her beautiful baby girl. So again, yes, this is a hard thing to walk through, but would we really wish away the negative knowing that we would lose all these positive things as well? So that's what I mean when I'm saying it was not just one emotion of sadness or joy being felt. This went on for a little while. As one big sad emotion would run its course, 
it would make way for another. And the process unfolded negative emotions that moved on and made room for incredibly positive ones of equal weight. Then amidst this immense sadness, I would cry for joy with the fact that I still have the option to call my sister on the phone. The heavier that each negative emotion became, the equally heavy the positive ones would also become as they naturally began to balance one another out. These painfully bitter and sweet emotions were so strong and so intertwined in the moment that there was no separation of the two. You could not have one without the other. They go side by side and help to define another on the scale of all things. I have no estimate of how long this went on, but once it seemed like there was nothing left to process, I just sat quietly leaning against a strong old tree, letting the breeze dry my cheeks. It was one of those moments where at the end, you feel rejuvenated and refreshed, but with absolutely zero energy to spare. It really was refreshing. My emotions began to settle, the breeze continued, and just like previously in the hike, I asked myself, why am I not happy? Granted, I had plenty of tough circumstances in my life to be bummed about, but my circumstances are far from the worst. So why am I not happy? I sat and poked at this question more because this unhappiness I was experiencing was deeper than just being sad by, you know, life circumstances. While sitting and thinking through these questions, something beautiful happened. And this is also where you need to allow your imagination to kick in a bit. The breeze picked up and swam through the trees above me, and in doing so, it shook a wave of leaves off of their treetops and sent them falling around the forest. All these yellows and orange and red, they're all dancing down, and it was hard not to stare. Every leaf you could focus on had its own distinct color, dance, and it was just set apart from the rest as it came down. These leaves all waltzing around me made me wonder, are they happy? Yeah, the leaves. Are they happy? This may seem like a silly question, but please reserve your judgments because I thought about it for probably too long, and I also came to a conclusion. So, at risk of sounding like a downer, I bet if you ask these falling leaves, and if they had the option to respond, they would be very sad and tell you they were not happy. Why do I think this? Well, the color that we call beautiful is from the fact that the leaf is going through its process of dying. The leaf is dancing in the wind because the tree had to cut it off to conserve its own energy and chooses to no longer support the leaf. And then it falls to the ground with no option after its whole life has been supported by the tree, only to then decay with all the others. So no, I don't think that the falling leaf would be happy if you asked them. Maybe this does not seem like a very valuable thought experiment to you, but then a very specific thought came to me as I started to chew on this leaf lesson, and I hope I'm expressing this clearly, but imagine if just for a moment you could take that one leaf out of its own process of death and falling, and you could allow it to experience the full beauty of fall from this perspective that I'm holding. What would happen if you were able to let this little leaf sit back against the tree with me and watch as the infinite number of other leaves made up the beauty that is autumn. Would that understanding make the individual leaf's circumstances more manageable? 
Maybe you can already see where this is going. As this metaphor of the autumn leaves unfolded in front of me, I began to see the similarity in myself to the little leaf and felt the original question of why am I not happy ebb closer to a possible answer. From the outside perspective, we can see the subjective beauty of the leaf as it dances through the air. Even though it is dying because we know that it is part of a larger story, the story of autumn and the tree's life as a whole. As a leaf falls to the ground and dies, its death is something that adds life and energy back to the soil, and that energy can then return to the trees and leaves in future seasons. It's easier to accept the death or sadness of the leaf because we know the fuller story. This life and leaf dies, and others will grow next season. But from the perspective of the leaf, it's not that easy. The leaf hasn't been here that long. The leaf has only been around for a few months. It doesn't have the same trust in the cycles of the seasons. Now, I admit, it's a lot of poetic buildup. But it's funny how things are revealed to us at times. Because although in the moment it seemed like I was having some silly thoughts about the emotions of the local leaf community, I realize now I was actually uncovering some valuable life lessons for myself to chew on in the months to come. So, let's take it back to what I first said and try to wrap it all up a little bit. I said that if you look close enough, there is life and death dancing together in every moment, but it is how you choose to see it that defines your outlook. And since you've heard a little bit of my story, I hope I'm painting some cohesive picture of how that statement takes shape for me. So what do I mean to choose and define your own outlook? This stream of realization I had while on my hike started to make me genuinely grateful for both the pain and joy that I have experienced, because they go hand in hand. I noticed that bitter and sweet actually define one another. Life and death need one another to have any kind of meaning. If you removed everything in my life that I deemed bad or uncomfortable, you would also remove many of the positive aspects. Because in life, whether it's a good or bad detail of the story, they all create opportunity for one another and are tied to each other. These opposites are needed to define one another. What I'm saying is that we only know the joys of food in our mouths because we have felt hunger. We only know the warmth of friends at dinner because we have had the nights by ourselves wishing we had some company. It's the opportunity of struggle itself and being able to experience any kind of pain that make happiness and peace have their desirability. The lines between negative and positive begin to blur for me because I don't know how one would exist without the other. If I were to be pumped full of just the happy chemicals for the rest of my life with no break, what would that even feel like? I think that at some point it would cease to even be enjoyable. Now, I'm not saying that we should intentionally seek out trials and tribulations, nor am I saying that we should toss in the towel and give up when a challenge arises. Listen, I know as much as the next person that sometimes life just tries to kick your ass and you gotta kick it back a little bit. I'm just saying that if we know both victory and conflict are unavoidable, can we adopt an outlook that accepts them both without any resistance? There's this cheeky little quote from a guy named Art Linkletter who says that 
things turn out best for those who make the best of the way things turn out. And I think that is what I'm trying to express. Whether you're at the peak of joy in your story or feel like you're trying to just get back on your feet, it's all part of the one vapor or story that you can step back and savor as it flows and changes, because it's always changing. I can decide to be mad that things are changing and try to force my vapor to stay the same, or I can enjoy the new details as they arise, not worrying about good and bad, because it's all just temporary. The outlook really is up to me. A last idea I will leave you with is this. Is true peace merely the absence of war, or is it tranquility despite there being a conflict? I'll say it again because it's something I need to hear and remind myself of more often. Is peace merely the absence of war, or is it having tranquility despite there being a conflict going on? So that's that, friends. It is my belief and goal of this podcast to try and display that I think we all can absolutely find joy in this life if we let ourselves find it in even the smallest details. I want people to believe again that happiness is something we can find now rather than something we work for and find later. I say that because if we fundamentally think that happiness and peace are always something that is out there or ahead of us in the timeline, then it might make sense why we experience less of it right now as the vapor changes because we keep telling ourselves joy and happiness are only ever coming soon and never happening now. I don't know, maybe you disagree. And hey, maybe one of us is right. But on that note, let's wrap it up. I've been going on a little while about brain chemicals and leaves, but I must say, I really hope you've gotten a little something out of today's episode that keeps you ticking. So, whether you feel like you are a leaf absorbing the sun from the safety of that treetop, or falling from the tree, or maybe lying down to replenish the earth, just try to remember that you are not the leaf, you are the beauty of autumn. Thanks for listening.